This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Our guest today is Jason Wingard, who's the Chief Learning Officer of Goldman Sachs. And Jason was earlier the Vice Dean of Executive Education here at Wharton. Jason, great to have you back at Wharton. Great to be here, McCool. Thank you for asking me. Well, uh, I-, I wonder if we could start talking about some of the challenges that you may have encountered both at Goldman Sachs and at Wharton Exec Ed. And that is, what are some of the challenges that companies face in managing managers of different generations? Sure. It's a great question. There are, as you know, several generations. As organizations continue to expand and grow and evolve and become more multinational, there are lots of different populations of employees and managers within that organization. And so as such, it becomes very difficult sometimes to have those different generations work together. Their values are often different, their background, their experiences, their education is different from one another. So when you bring them together and ask them to produce work results, often we have to think through what those differences are and help to educate them on how they can overcome those differences to be as effective as possible. Right. And so one hears a, a, a lot that has been said and written, especially about the millennials. Now, how do you define the millennials and what are some of the unique challenges in dealing with this generation? Millennials in general are characterized, characterized as Generation Y. Uh, I think about them from a corporate work perspective as being of age around 18 to 25, 26. So they're the youngest, probably most junior population in any corporate organization. Uh, What's unique about them is that their parents, uh, who are the baby boomers, have raised them in a very unique way. They have given them, in general, I'm speaking in generalities here, but in general, they have given them... um, background, uh, experiences, support, unlike any other generation in history. They have been helicopter parents to this generation, and so they've been very sheltered, very entitled, some may say. As a result, they come to work uh, very well experienced. Their base of Uh, relationships and things that they've done has been really expansive. The problem is, for some corporate leaders and managers, is that they do feel like they're a little bit more entitled. Although they're willing to work hard, they also want to have access, for example, to strategy. They want to spend time in the war room of an organization to understand how their role, as small as it may be, funnels into the larger organizational strategy. They want to know a little bit more about how the culture is going to benefit them. Beyond just ping pong tables and beanbag chairs and free food, they want to understand that coming to work is actually a great place to be. They want to be able to tout it as an effective, fun, engaging environment. And so that accessibility, that culture is very important to them. Also, they want to make sure that it's the, the career orientation element is really important to them. They don't want to take a job and think about it as being a lifetime of employment and that they're going to follow through the ranks and go from step to step. They actually want to think about their time in this job as being able to build transferable skills. How can I take this first job of mine or this second job of mine and build a set of transferable skills that will be with me for the rest of my career, that I'll be able to utilize uh, to benefit me and to benefit the kind of work that I can use to be productive members of of corporate 
corporate society. So they want to know what those transferable skills are. Again, they want to be able to be exposed to clients. They want to be able to be exposed to strategy. They want to make sure that the communication that they're getting about the nature of the business is relevant to them. They want the culture and the work environment to be suitable so that they feel good about where they work and that they want to stay there and they want to dig in and really be a part of it. So what implications does this have uh, when it comes to the millennials' work ethic, for example, or their attitudes toward things like work-life balance? The perception often is that millennials do not want to work hard. I haven't found that in my experience. In fact, they want to work very hard. The difference is is that they want, as I said earlier, uh, to be challenged um, by understanding the broader strategy and the broader organizational goals. Work-life balance, as such, is a, is a is an interesting phenomenon because the, although they're willing to work hard, they also want to know that they have some predictability in when they aren't working. They want to have some predictability and flexibility in being able to spend time with their family, with their friends, focused on their health, or focused on other parts and aspects of their lives, which will ha- help to make them a little bit more balanced. So contrary to prior generations at this age and at this stage in their ju- the junior part of their careers, where they may have been more willing to invest a higher percentage of their work time and their lifetime to work. This generation wants to have more of a balanced experience earlier in their careers. Now remember, we said the Generation Y, the millennials, are a product of the baby boomers. So they have seen their parents and their parents' friends work really hard in the 80s, and they sacrificed a lot of time with family. They sacrificed a lot of time with their health. They sacrificed a lot of time with uh, uh, members of their friends and other constituents in order to spend time climbing the corporate ladder at work. So they saw that that led, in some cases, to divorce or in some cases to chronic illness. And this generation, the millennials, do not want to do that. They do not want to experience that themselves. So although they've learned how to work hard, they've seen that in action. They know what it takes to be successful. And of course, they want to be successful. They are definitely engaged uh, and motivated to be successful. They also want to see that a corporation has the flexibility to give them a little bit of balance so that they can change their lives to be much more balanced than they saw their, their parents and, their, and that generation experience. Right. So now if we were to loop this back to the idea that we started with of, uh, you know, how you manage uh, millennials uh, along with older generations uh, such as the baby boomers, uh, what sort of implications does this have for the kind of leadership programs that you see companies putting into place? Uh, and, and, And what are some of the issues that come up uh, that need to be resolved. That's interesting, McCool. In, in addition to the millennials, another population, which cuts across generations as well, but from a leadership development standpoint, that we see and we work with uh, exclusively is the producer manager. So the producer manager is a definition of uh, an employee who has risen through the ranks. They were an individual contributor. They worked at the lowest levels of the organization, and they accelerated through the organization by doing their jobs and their tasks as individual contributors really well. As they did that work and as they progressed through the organization, they became managers. Not necessarily because they are good managers, but because as individual contributors, they produced a really good work product. As they become managers, it becomes the responsibility of the organization, and this is what we do at Goldman Sachs as well. Uh, as they become managers, it's incumbent upon us to teach them how to be good managers. How do you motivate employees? 
How do you create followership so that they are willing to follow you? How do you communicate what the strategy is so that there's expectations that are known and understood by the people who are following you? How do you make sure that you are setting a culture where people are having fun, as we said earlier, for the millennial generation? How are you making sure that your population of workers is diverse? How are you making sure that you are evaluating all of the people in the organization objectively and not just subjectively? These are skills and attributes that managers don't necessarily have by working their way up through the organization as producers, as commercial killers, if you will. And so what we need to do as learning and development professionals is to take these highly charged, highly impactful, largely producers in their career and show them the benefits of being a good manager, how to be effective, effective in such a role, and how to develop each of those skills and attributes so that they can lead people uh, and cascade the good work that they're able to do to others. Now, part of being a good manager, uh, regardless of the level that you are at within an organization, uh, is the ability to uh, create effective teams. And as business becomes more and more global, uh, we find that very often teams have to work across multiple geographies, multiple time zones, etc. Now, what, what's some of the current thinking on how you navigate some of the cultural differences that arise when when you're not not just uh, trying to uh, 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 get strong performance from intergenerational teams, mm -hmm. but even teams that are diversified by geography and time zone? It's a great question as well. Many organizations, Goldman Sachs included, are faced now with, because of growth, because of global expansion, having offices, having partners, having clients located all over the world. As those groups of professionals interact, there are a series of challenges, whether it's time zone and you know, what time do you turn on the video conference? How can you be sensitive to those in Asia or those in New York? You know, how can you be sensitive to the different cultural styles and how you deal with uh, topics such as gender? In some cultures, uh, women are treated differently around the boardroom or in professional executive situations than in other places. How do you manage that? How do people of color in various regions, uh, how are they going to be treated, you know, in this global uh, intergeographical context? So as companies become more global and they are forced to deal with clients, employees, partners, working more closely together and having to navigate all of those cultural differences, one of the key aspects of leadership development that becomes necessary to the performance and the strategy of an organization is making sure that the sensitivity is there. Often people have no trouble working across geographic contexts, but it's not until they understand what the differences are and how their behavior may be perceived and how their actions may be received. And so we spend a lot of time coaching different leaders and organizations and bringing people together to, to generate that kind of cultural awareness and sensitivity. That's really interesting. Now, now this brings me to another point that uh, I've been meaning to ask you about. Uh, one of the words, terms that I have often seen bandied about quite a bit is thought leadership. Uh, what exactly is thought leadership and how do you nurture that within a company? Any examples? Sure. Thought leadership defined is new insights, new ideas about a given topic 
that can be shared with a wide range of people so that those insights and ideas can be applied to whatever their um, desired need is, whatever their line of work is. Thought leadership in organizations can take on an, a variety of forms. In its simplest and most basic form, it can be articles, white papers, books, blogs, things that leaders write about to share ideas with other people in that organization. Now, that can be senior leaders in the organization, board members, division heads, uh, directors, vice presidents, et cetera, who have insights and ideas that they can share broadly within the organization. That can also include external thought leaders, such as government leaders or sports coaches or leaders or any of a number of people in the world who have leadership positions and who have new insights on what makes them successful and productive in those roles and how that might be broadly applied to other industries, to other roles, to other lines of work. So an example is many organizations, um, particularly in the United States, take some of these leaders, they bring them onto the corporate campus, and they expose their workers to them. So if you are a World Series baseball general manager, you may have thought about five reasons why you were able to lead the team to victory. And they may include A, B, C, and D. And you talk about what those are, how you implemented those leadership lessons with the organization, and how they may be applicable to that specific business. You may have a prime minister of a given country or a given government talking about a crisis that they've gone through from a leadership perspective and how they went through and navigated that crisis and came out victorious. How were the lessons that were learned in that exchange through that process, through that experience, applicable to this organization. And so the process of sharing those ideas and having a dynamic dialogue between the people who are working in that organization creates an atmosphere where you're really learning about new themes, about new experiences, and it, the takeaways become really relevant to the person at the lowest level as well as the highest level. So thought leadership can come in all of those different forms, from writing, from interactive dialogues and interviews such as this, or it can come in the form of much more intimate one-on-one -on -one discussions with men through mentorship um, or through... Uh, you know, more intimate Q&A exchange with outside leaders as well. Got it. Well, one of the biggest drivers of change in organizations these days uh, is technology. Uh, what impact has technology had on the way in which companies uh, approach corporate learning? Corporate learning traditionally has been much more of a push approach, push in quotes. The learning is developed, the curriculum is designed, and it's pushed out to the employees in a variety of different modalities. Those modalities may include the most basic, which is classroom, but they also may include executive education at a business school like Wharton. It may include experiential learning, where you take people off-site and you do team building and other leadership activities. It may also include executive coaching, which used to be just for people who had some kind of a uh, need, a negative need for developing themselves to be more productive in the organization, but now that is becoming much more proactive as well, so even strong, high-performing leaders are getting executive coaching so that they can, again, cascade the good work that they're doing to their peers and to others. So you have all these forms of traditional learning that corporations have been engaged in and some more than others have been delivering uh, for decades. 
The other side of that, what e-learning does to your question, is it creates much more of a pull operation. So now, whether it's the millennials, whether it's the producer managers that we spoke of earlier, whoever the audience is in an organization, if they have a particular need to help them engage in their work and to be more productive in real time, just in time, e-learning presents that opportunity. So now all of a sudden you have a platform, you have a mechanism for gaining access to content when you want it, as opposed to what someone else has deemed is necessary for you and delivering it to you in a way that may not be uh, correlated with the way you learn best. It's, that's interesting, Jason, because uh, one of the things that we've seen in academia is that there's also a pull mechanism here. Uh, there's, there's been so much written about these massive open online courses, or MOOCs as they are called, uh, and, and, and all these are having profound uh, implications uh, for business schools and other kinds of educational institutions. Uh, I wonder if you see any of those kinds of trends in corporate learning. And if so, what are some of the key lessons so far? Yeah, MOOCs is a wonderful phenomenon that, as you said, has emerged first from the university, the academic environment, where you're able to take the best academic research and teaching and broadcast it to tens and thousands of people around the world. So it's making it more accessible. What we see as a trend now in the corporate space is that these, these MOOCs are becoming packaged and closed more for a corporate experience. So the corporate MOOCs is a new phenomenon that many of these MOOC providers uh, are developing. We at Goldman Sachs actually have launched several corporate MOOCs ourselves. And part of the benefit is, is that for people who don't know what a MOOC is, it actually is an e-learning experience that combines video, it combines assessment, it combines uh, data, knowledge management materials that you can read. Uh, it also includes um, social media so you can talk to the professor, you can talk to the people in the classroom. It uses lots of different elements that actually are intended to mimic a real social classroom experience. And so the benefits that we're seeing is, again, as a pull opportunity, people are able to use this learning at the time that they want to use it. Um, they're also able to do it on their own time. So a lot of traditional corporate training happens during the workday. It takes people away from the desk, away from the office, and it may, in some cases, sacrifice time from doing the real work of the job. With e-learning and with MOOCs in particular, you can take those courses whenever you want. You can start them. You can pause. You can take it again later. You can do that on your own time. You can do it during your commute on your way home. So it makes it really accessible in a way that people can actually use it in a way that's not detracting from their day-to-day -day experience, number one. Number two, it also caters to a different learning style for a generation that prefers to be able to have a flexible learning experience. So a millennial who is taking the train um, from Chicago to their office is able to open up an app. The MOOC is there. They can watch the video during their train ride in. They can take an assessment test or a quiz to find out whether they know the learning um, that's intended or not. They can take an evaluation test at the end. They can read supplemental articles. They can look at a presentation from various faculty members all over the world. And that's the way that they want to learn. And then they can communicate with other people who are taking the course to find out what themes they learned or ask questions of them or of the faculty members. And so that dynamic set of choices uh, and variability in the learning experience is what 
many people in the younger generations really want, but even in the older populations of learners, they're finding it to be much more convenient because they can pick the topic that they want at that time for the given challenge that they're experiencing right then, as opposed to saying, I'm going to take three months from now a leadership development course on negotiations, and maybe I'm not dealing with negotiation problems or issues in my job right now. Maybe what I really need help with are the legal implications of managing women. And I need help with doing that. And I want to be able to take a course, and there's a MOOC course there that will help me to be more sensitive, to understand my challenges, my behaviors, my biases. I want to take that right now. And so the MOOCs are a really good vehicle for helping them to be able to do that right away. As you get more involved in these technology-driven learning initiatives, what have you concluded about the limits of technology? Uh, in the sense, what, what do you think technology can do really well, and what does it fail to do? For large organizations in particular, what technology allows them to do from a learning standpoint is to really take the curriculum and the content to scale. So when you have a small organization, you can take 30 people, put them in a room, spend a day, and you can really have a dynamic and impactful session where you're sharing ideas and you're relaying content is really useful and necessary for a given moment in time for that group. As the organization grows and you want to take that content and distribute it to more and more people where the company may have had 25 vice presidents but then maybe 10 years later, they may have 15,000 vice presidents. And when you have 15,000 vice presidents and you have a checklist of curriculum and competencies that you want them all to know about, then all of a sudden it does not become feasible to take all of those people, put them in a room, and have group think and group uh, education. So technology, for the most part, allows people to have scalability in distributing learning content. But secondly, as we just talked about, it also provides an opportunity for just-in-time learning that is becoming more and more necessary for people who are working in dynamic work situations where issues come up, where they don't have the learning, they don't have the knowledge, they need to be trained on it immediately, and e-learning allows them to be able to go out into that world to select what they need and to take it when and how they need to do it. So for those two reasons, scalability and for accessibility just in time, e-learning provides a much better opportunity. Are you seeing much use of gamification and social media initiatives? Gamification is a phenomenon that is really growing rapidly in the corporate learning landscape. Uh, mo so? Most people know and have seen games being used by young kids who are playing in uh, really live-looking 3D worlds just for fun. What corporate trainers and designers have been able to do is to create these immersive learning experiences for corporate settings. So one example uh, is when you create avatars of real people in organizations and you model the world, the office environment, and you create these avatars and you have them navigate the real world experience uh, in such a way that you can teach people what it's like to provide leadership, to communicate strategy, to create followership, as we said earlier. To do many of the things that we would teach in a traditional classroom setting, you can watch it happen in this immersive learning world. And so people have the opportunity to see a real world character with the same kind of content, 
with actually supporting nuggets, such as video clips or little bubbles that may come up above a person's head with supplemental content. And so it's a real opportunity for people to be entertained, but actually to still have real hard-hitting content being applied in just a much more, uh, a much different environment. And so for some people, it's, it, it mirrors having a classroom session where you do a live case. So you may have a session where I'm teaching a class about um, intercultural communication and leadership, and I give you a PowerPoint presentation with all of the key themes, and then I say, now we're going to do a role play where we're going to act out these themes and we're going to show you how this works in real life. And so then I'll ask for two volunteers. I'll have them sit on the stage. I'll give them both a script and we'll kind of play it out, right? In gamification, it allows you to do that through the whole sequence. You can actually, you can actually present what the themes are, but then they are actually being modeled and acted out in really real-world-looking, entertaining experiences. So lots of organizations, particularly as they are trying to entice millennials to stay in the organization, to think that it is a fun culture, to learn in a way that meets their needs, are using MOOCs, are using gamification, are using other forms of social media to make sure that those experiences are coming to the millennials in a way that they want. And actually, the other older populations in the organization are really warming to these new ways of learning as well. Right. Uh, I wonder if we could end with a couple of uh, sort of Real broad brush questions. Uh, there's a lot uh, that uh, has been written about the so-called war for talent. Um, what are some of the new strategies and tactics that you see uh, uh, in this war? Well, we talked about a few of the tactics that corporations are using. The war for talent really is a real phenomenon now. We've talked a lot about millennials. We've talked a lot about the global marketplace opening up. So for the first time in the last five years, there are a lot more job opportunities available to employees you know, in their region, in their industry, but outside of their industry. And people are leaving the industries that they've worked in and grown up in at a much more rapid pace than they have in the past. So when you have the millennials as one population, but you also have the global marketplace opening up, all of a sudden, companies are finding that it's really challenging to keep their people uh, in their organizations and to go out and get new replacements for those. So that war is really escalating. Uh, One of the things that we're seeing is that what are the strategies that companies can do to recruit the talent? Well, you have to be able to go out and give a message of the value proposition for why working at that organization is so important. Now, obviously, you have to be able to do those things in the organization. You have to have a set culture that is attractive. You have to have leadership that is really strong and dynamic and has created that sense of fellowship that we talked about earlier. You have to have an environment where people are saying this is a great place to work. This is a place where we win. This is a place where we are productive. This is a place that nourishes and nurtures me to be the best that I can be. That message gets out and becomes broadly communicated um, as rumor, as real. And also you can do it with your recruiting function to be able to codify what those themes are so that people really do want to come and work. The other side, though, is retention. And so once you do get the best people, you go to the best schools and the best organizations, you attract the best talent, and now you have them, 
what kinds of things are you doing in your organization to make sure that they want to stay? And it leads back to all the things we talked about before, um, but organizations have to spend a lot more time on that than they did in the past. When we were in markets where jobs were hard to get, companies could focus much more specifically on the bottom line and on the attributes that allowed them to be successful in the marketplace. Now, when we're in this talent war uh, environment, companies have to spend much more time on their human capital. Let's stay close to our people. Let's make sure we understand what they want. Let's make sure that we are providing at least some of what they want. Let's make sure that we are monitoring and evaluating uh, how well we are doing against those needs. And companies haven't had to do that much in the past at all, particularly large companies, because uh, people would always have the talent that was coming in. You could go, if you were Goldman Sachs even, you could go to a top business school, and you know you'd be able to attract the best talent based on the work performance that Goldman Sachs has had for years and the reputation for excellence, and people would come and they would think about wanting to stay in that job for a long time over their career. Now, because of the millennial orientation and because of other factors of other opportunities available to them around the world, we're seeing that they may want to come for a little while, but they're much more inclined to want to go and work somewhere else and try other things at small companies. Uh, for example, small technology companies, small hedge funds. And so we have spent a lot of time thinking about that dilemma and creating a culture where people actually do want to come, where they actually do want to stay, where actually do uh, develop transferable skills that allow them to think about their career in a much longer way at the firm. And so a lot of companies are having to think about their talent in just that way as this war heats up. Right. Well, let's, let's uh, tackle one last question, which I know you've thought a lot about. Uh, what is the relationship between corporate learning and corporate strategy? And is there any evidence that uh, companies that are able to integrate the two can uh, see better performance? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, historically, companies have developed corporate strategies. Well, I should say the companies that have been most successful in business and in the markets and whatever area they produce products or services have been the most successful when they've been able to develop a very strong corporate strategy. It wasn't necessarily true that corporate training, learning and development, leadership development needed to be aligned with that corporate strategy in order for them to be successful. The global sense of business boundaries wasn't as dynamic as it is now. The speed of product to market wasn't happening as quickly as it is now. Those two forces alone have created an environment where organizations now are facing competition in such a myriad of ways that they need to now make sure that not only do we need to have a really strong, rock-solid corporate strategy, but we need to make sure that our people can implement that strategy as quickly as we can develop it, and as efficiently and better than anybody else. How can we get our people to be prepared to develop the strategy we're developing in a much faster, much more creative way? Well, that's where corporate training comes in, and that's where jobs like mine are so critical to an organization because you have to think about not only the traditional forms of, tr of corporate training and not only the e-learning forms, but even other more creative ways to stay linked very tightly and in, re and in real time with what are the leaders of the organization developing in the, in the form of strategy, 
How are we going to develop new services, new products? What are the barriers that we're facing? How are we going to resist pressure? Whatever the corporate strategy variables are, the learning function needs to be at the seat of the table at the same time to think about and be asking the questions concurrently. How can we make sure that our people will be able to do and implement whatever it is that we're thinking about trying to do as fast as possible? How can we get them ready? How can we get the people aligned with the right roles? And once they are aligned with the right roles, how can we develop them quickly so that they can implement those challenges? How can we also be creating a pool of successors so that once the former population has cycled out, we have a new population of new leaders that are prepared to do the same work. If we don't have in organizations, particularly large organizations, global multinational organizations, a seamless connection between the people and the leadership development and the professional development and the strategy, then what you're going to be faced with is a really dynamic and good strategy that the people can't function with and they can't implement. And so we're seeing lots of examples of that now. Historically, you have seen organizations like GE, where they've developed their own corporate university in Crotonville, and they've actually made a very strong and public point of creating strategy and creating people development learning together and making sure that time was taken to do that. But now you see a lot of other organizations doing that as well. And Goldman Sachs is one that also does that. So we are constantly in the process of developing dynamic strategy, responding to the market, making sure that we're providing service and excellence to our customers and to our clients and working seamlessly with our partners, but also making sure that our leaders are getting the right leadership development Lessons and interventions, coaching, you know, and access to content that they need to be able to be as dynamic in that exchange as possible. So uh, you'll see a lot of corporate universities, you know, following suit on that multinational organizations that are hiring chief learning officers where they are creating forums for corporate strategy and corporate learning to come together spending money, providing the resources, taking the time, because it's already been proven from a return on investment standpoint that if you do that, then you will actually be able to implement your strategy more effectively and you will get the return you're looking for. If you do not do that, you actually may lose now. Now is a time where you can't just have the strategy. If you don't have the learning map together, we are seeing companies that are losing uh, their game, their competitive game. Jason, thanks so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. Appreciate it, Nicole. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.